Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 325. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2017, Certified American Grown Flowers. The Certified American Grown program and label provide a guarantee for designers and consumers on the source of their flowers. Take pride in your flowers and buy with confidence. Ask for Certified American Grown Flowers. To learn more, visit americangrownflowers.org. As more people ask, where is my food grown? And increasingly, where are my flowers grown? Issues of access to available land where food and flowers can be produced are increasingly important, especially in urban areas. My guest today, Brian Sellers-Peterson, is working at the heart of food justice and turning underused land into productive, inclusive mini farms. An avid gardener, beekeeper, and chicken rancher, Brian is author of a new book, Harvesting Abundance, Local Initiatives of Food and Faith, which tell the story of mostly Episcopal congregations around the country that are stewarding their land in new ways, sharing produce that's grown on parcels once carpeted by green lawns. He has recently started consulting after nearly 17 years with Episcopal Relief and Development, and he holds the unique title of Cathedral Apiarist or Beekeeper at St. Mark's Cathedral in Seattle. Brian writes, one reason to have a garden on the church's front lawn or most visible site is that it will receive lots of foot traffic. You might not initially get many fans from those who are used to lovely ornamental landscaping, but with some care and thought, you can win them over with carefully designed arrays of purple basil, rainbow chard, intercrop flowers, fruit, and trees, and fill in the blank. It's going to communicate to members, neighbors, and visitors, your values, and how people of faith are committed to gathering together around a table to eat. Brian maintains that everything you really need to know about the creator and creation, you can learn in a garden. I love that sentiment and the meaning behind it. We go back two decades to when we both worked at a large Christian NGO here in Seattle, and I've always found myself encouraged by Brian's progressive ideas and by the way he walks the talk in his own life. Brian's been involved in Seattle's Food and Faith Network, bringing together congregations of many faiths to learn how to start community and teaching gardens and other agricultural projects that grow healthy local food and flowers, build community, care for the earth, and bring justice to neighbors and people they serve. I look forward to sharing this conversation with you, and you can find links to Brian's book and other projects at today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I am delighted today to introduce you to my friend, Brian Sellers-Peterson. Hi, Brian. 
Hi, Deb. Good to hear from you. Yeah, it's great great to finally connect. Uh, we've, we've had a couple good conversations around farming, flowers, and food this year. And um, I wanted to have you on the podcast because you have a new book out called Harvesting Abundance, Local Initiatives of Food and Faith. And we're going to uh, share uh, the cover of this book and also links uh, to how people can um, order it uh, at today's show notes uh, at DebraPrinzing.com. But Brian, first I want to talk a little bit about your background. You define yourself in the book as a gardener, beekeeper, and chicken rancher, which I love, but I know you, and I've known you for 20 years, as an international relief and development advocate, a community organizer, someone who's deeply involved in social justice issues. So how did you come to write this book, Harvesting Abundance? Connect the dots for me. Well, I just turned 60 years old, so it's easy to do the math. (laughs) Um, uh, The seed was planted 60 years ago. I grew up in the Midwest um, amongst farm folks. Um, my parents were the first generation off the farm, so I spent my summers and vacation times and long weekends even on the farm and um, sort of learned at, you know, my grandparents' knees. And um, I really got to know, um, uh, you know, just how invigorating being, you know, being connected to the soil can be. Um, farming is probably the toughest, hardest job there is. And so my parents quietly talked me out of pursuing that career. <laughs> but then I went into another pretty tough career in international relief and development. And when I would travel um, overseas and visited projects, worked on projects, um, many of them were small-scale agriculture. Um, you know, I, I hmm. really gained a different appreciation for what we do in the United States. So when I would come back after these trips, I would see these small-scale, um, you know, growing projects and um, community gardens. We call them pea patches in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And I would you know, look at them and say, that's just like what I saw in Burundi, or that's just like what I saw in Cambodia. And, um, you know, I had one of those Yogi Berra moments, you know, deja vu all over again. <laughs> and I started looking at particularly church property in a completely different way. And, and you know, church, a lot of churches have beautiful green lawns. Um, that they use all the time for different activities. But, you know, a growing number of churches have beautiful green lawns uh, that they only use twice a year, once for the Easter egg hunt and the other time for uh, a church picnic, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, yeah. I think we need to be better stewards of everything God entrusts to us. And, and, and when it comes to institutions like churches, we need to make sure that all of our um, gifts and assets are used uh, to strengthen the whole community, not just the people that sit in the pews. Hmm. And I started to... Yeah, it's interesting because you know this sort of echoes what a lot of people involved in getting school gardens are saying about 
land that is underutilized, um, there's a lot of real estate owned by institutions, both government and nonprofit. And, you know, churches, synagogues, mosques are all sitting on a lot of land that's, like you said, maybe just, you know, has sod on it. Well, you know, and I'm even coming across corporations that have, that are putting in vegetable gardens for the use of their employees on breaks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, my little town in Minnesota, which is not far from the Mayo Clinic, has a satellite clinic. And they've got a garden uh, that one of the um, family docs started to educate patients about the importance of, uh, you know, growing their own food and staying away from prepared food. So you'd had this connection of knowing what you had done um, on interna- international relief and development projects, which are really like micro farming. And I love that, that picture that you paint in the, in the book in Harvesting Abundance about a, a man who um, was simply given a few chickens and it changed his life so he could support his family and educate his children and then, you know, become like an egg king almost in his community. And, <laughs> um, but, but that was sort of this abstract international thing. And then how did you actually connect the dots with real farming, micro urban farming in Seattle, growing food? Um, you just somehow that you were drawn into that just almost subconsciously as being a child of, of a grandchild of farmers, it sounds like. Yeah. And so I started seeing churches with, um, gardens. Um, and, um, I, part of my job with Episcopal Relief and Development at the time was to help, um, our constituents in the United States better understand what we did globally. Hmm. So I was part of a team that built a Sunday school curriculum using a vegetable garden as a classroom to learn about international development and, um, you know, basically the tenets of the Christian faith, which wow. is, you know, Christianity and Judaism and, and many of the other major faiths are very much agrarian religions hmm. um, that are rich with, with um, you know, teaching about, yeah. you know, caring for the land. Right, right. You had some personal experience, though, when you started gardening and digging deeper, no pun intended, um, with uh, the sabbatical you had, right? Right. Um, About five or six years ago, I took a three-month sabbatical, and I decided I wanted to, you know, travel around and see how churches um, steward their land um, assets, Mm -hmm. and with a particular eye on um, growing food, um, as you know, and you know, more and more churches are doing edible landscaping. And you know, I've started to find churches that intercrop edibles and ornamentals. So you know, the food goes to their feeding ministries, and the flowers go on to their their altars um, for Sunday. Um, you know, the flower guild is growing. Hmm. Uh, flowers and, and you know it's just really exciting. So I started mapping all of these projects, but I also worked on a biodynamic farm just outside of Seattle, and I took classes from Seattle Tilth, which is um, 
it's pretty significant urban agriculture educational mm-hmm. organization right. in Seattle. And, uh, you know, I got talking with the staff and um, I started looking at gardens from outside my faith tradition in, in the Seattle area. And we cooked up this idea of starting a food and faith project in Seattle, which brought together, you know, people from a variety of churches, synagogues, uh, a mosque, um, you know, the um, self-realization group, um, humanist groups. um, And it grew to uh, around 50, and it's been on a short hiatus, and I'm helping... um, resurrected so to speak uh, which is really an exciting opportunity i yeah i attended a couple of your um basically show and tells and and like open you opened up um a tour of a of a small garden at a house of faith and um i was so moved by the fact that there were people of many faiths coming together to just talk about the simple need for healthy, nutritious food in their communities and how they can play a small role in that. And so that's sort of the external benefit, but it seems like there were lots of internal benefits about uh, kind of going back to that Sunday school curriculum you're talking about, about involving youth and providing lessons from, from growing things. Just Yeah. And combining with sort of the social justice mandate that the major religions have to, you know, really to, you know, love one another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of our religious organizations, they're sitting in the middle of food deserts, mm-hmm. um, you know, or they're adjacent to food deserts, or the people who worship at their congregation uh, come from food deserts. And, you know, food deserts are, you know, a problem because, you know, what that really means is people don't have access to fresh nutritious food and so you know if you if there isn't a grocery store within walking distance or a direct bus line uh, for people who don't own cars you know the grocery store is 7-eleven right right and i mean one exciting project was a group of churches in the central district of seattle partnered with the university of washington's public health school and put in gardens, and and they ran classes for preparing food from the gardens. Because again, in in some places, people have, you know, really lost um, the, the a cooking skill, right? Uh, because you know they're eating junk food and they're going to fast food and they're using a microwave. And, um, you know, the other thing that churches have in abundance along with land is they have a lot of kitchens that are (laughs) underutilized as well. That's right. Right. They're just um, making coffee for, for, for the reception (laughs) after the service on Sunday and it's empty the rest, rest of the week. Exactly. And we're starting to see some churches that are opening their kitchens to small entrepreneurs who don't have the capital to or to get to buy and start their own kitchen, but they've got enough money to rent something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, many of these churches have commercial grade kitchens um, or, you know, that can be used uh, when they're not 
used being used by the church, which yeah. for a lot of churches, it's 99% of the time they're not using it. Yeah. So, you know, you, you did this, you started to say you did this, this series of sort of self-education on your sabbatical. You worked on a biodynamic farm. You started taking uh, food growing classes at Tilth. You started talking with people about um, this, this you know, abundance of land that's laying around Seattle and, and elsewhere in the country that that congregations can start used to growing food. How did that become a book? How did what's what what inspired you to do that? Just because you're you're a lifelong storyteller, or <laughs> part of it is you know um, storytelling. I um, am an itinerant preacher with Episcopal Relief and Development, going to churches that support our work, and I do uh, adult education presentations, mm-hmm. and you know going to conferences to talk and people say, you should really write those stories down. Mm. And uh, finally, a friend of mine who happened to be an editor uh, at the Episcopal Church's publishing house, um, she says, she told me, I'll help you write a proposal. Um, I can't guarantee, you know, that we'll, we'll take it, but I think you've got a book here. And um, lo and behold, they, you know, picked it up, took the, picked it up and it's really selling well. I've, you know, I've been doing a lot of book signings and presentations around the book, which have been a blast. And so any of you who are listening here, feel free to invite me to <laughs> come and talk about my book. Well, um, you know, I just know I'm holding it in my hand and I notice I know books have to get like slotted into certain categories and on the back on the back it says at the top environmental environment and social justice so that's really interesting that the publisher sees uh those categories that, or those that genre as where this book belongs which i think is going to get you a broader audience um than say if it was a, a devotional book or some kind of you know bible study book i mean it's it that's that's really not the point here the point is to inspire people to take these uh, case studies almost, and apply it maybe to their own congregation or their own community, and maybe try some of these tips, right? Yeah, and there's no cookie cutter stuff, uh, but there's some broad principles of you know how you can get something going, and I contend that every single religious congregation and institution can grow food and flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, they may not have a stitch of grass, but that doesn't stop them from um, putting in um, some raised beds on the parking lot. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an example of a school in Tucson, Arizona, that is across the street from the Greyhound Station in a very poor part of town. They don't have a stitch of grass, but they have a courtyard, and they put horse troughs all around it. They've come up with some really creative vertical gardening, and they're and they're starting starts inside um, before they plant. Um, so, you know, they've managed to hustle some money to buy grow lights. And, um, you know, if this Imago Day school can do it, anyone can do it. Yeah, that is that is one of the most profound chapters in, in your book is just talking about uh, back to the food desert that this the students at this this middle school, most of them did not have uh, geographic access to a conventional grocery store and that their families were having to 
shop at convenience stores. And I, I just couldn't believe it that, um, you know, in a, in a big city like Tucson, that that is actually, you know, the situation. But uh, I, I'm so inspired by what the teachers did to come up with a way to get healthy food into their, you know, kids' bodies, but also help those, the families of those kids. And then beyond that, the, the larger community. So Brian, what, um, what advice do you give to somebody who maybe realizes that they have uh, a, 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 I don't know, a church or a parish or a synagogue or a mosque that they're involved in that has a big fat green lawn? <laughs> and, you know, maybe this is the time to start exploring using that, um, being a better steward of that land. I mean, what, where do you start? I think you start by um, looking at congregations nearby hmm. that have gardens. Mm-hmm. And I've even been to, you know, some small towns in rural areas um, where, you know, probably a lot of the parishioners are farmers, commercial farmers. Mm-hmm. But they still have, you know, a small garden um, at the church and the food will go to the food bank or there's a community garden, you know, for neighbors to be able to put something in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you always have to walk before you run. <laughs> and I think people in congregations who are motivated to do this, they know sort of the threshold. They know what they can get away with, mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. in other words. <laughs> uh, because there's other, you know, the buildings and grounds committee sometimes take a little time to... Um, Get them on board. <laughs> oh, so so there's like these truly can be sacred um, hydrangea hedges that maybe no one wants to remove and grow food. I, I I think I know what you're talking about there. People have their their own passion about maybe what a garden a church garden should look like. It does it get political. One, one, <laughs> one initiative that I really like um, comes from London. And they're very concerned about global warming, you know, and just that the temperature, the average temperature gets higher every year. And with all that asphalt around, um, you know, it's getting hotter and hotter. And so there are four Anglican dioceses in Greater London, plus the Lord Mayor of London's office. And the, the mayor happens to be Muslim. They have started an initiative to put fruit trees Um, in churchyards and other sacred spaces, um, you know, to provide shade cover um, to, for, for pollination purposes. And, you know, I'm seeing more and more uh, religious congregations putting beehives in, um, in some pretty unusual places like Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris has a big apiary on their roof. Um, and, and so there's all sorts of creative things people could do. Yeah, um, I think it's, with yeah, to it's, to um, share this. Yeah, and I think I think your point is uh, just to restate is like find don't think you have to reinvent the wheel. Find other congregations in, maybe in your area that perhaps have gardens. Maybe do do a little primary research, and there's probably a generous soul there or a group who's willing to kind of give you some some tips to get started, maybe share some seeds, share some tools, uh, or people bring probably have all that's everything they need in their own garage to get started. And, um, you just have to get a, maybe, a 
a cohort of folks willing to start growing. Yeah, just get get a couple people. One row. But the other thing I always say now, every church can have a garden. But I usually follow that up with it and I say, but not every church should have a garden. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think the church has to kind of go through some soul searching, some discernment about, you know, how they're involved in feeding the world. Mm-hmm. And maybe they make the decision um, that they're not going to grow food on their property, but they can still be involved in some aspect. And, you know, maybe it's a group of people from the parish who rent a uh, community garden plot in the city's um, community garden. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that all the food that they grow goes to the food bank. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that sort of project will be noticed by the other community gardeners. And and I think it's a good reflection on the church Mm -hmm. in in doing something like Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. The other thing I think that everyone should be involved in is really understanding the U.S. Farm Bill and, you know, being advocates in appropriate ways. Um, you know, the Farm Bill impacts so much of our um, federal budget and just incredible food needs around the country that are impacted, uh, you know, like WIC, the Women, Infant, and Children's Supplemental Feeding Program, falls under the Farm Bill. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think churches that are gardening, farming, agriculturally focused should also be advocates. Yeah, that's right. Are, are you able to provide resources to groups that um, come to your website looking for that sort of information? Yes, or, and, okay. and so like on the advocacy, it's in there, but you know, the, the best organization for that inv- kind of involvement is a group called Bread for the World. I used to be an organizer for them, and it's just bread.org. Okay. So you're set. If you want to get involved in advocacy, bread.org is the place to go. Cool. Well, I can't let you uh, leave without talking about one of your uh, one of your many titles, which is uh, <laughs> really the best title I've ever heard for anyone, Cathedral Apiarist uh, at St. Mark's Cathedral in Seattle. Does that mean you're like the chief beekeeper, Brian? Like, tell us about how you got St. Mark's, this amazing cathedral, beautiful, right in downtown Seattle or on Capitol Hill, beautiful piece of property. Where are the bees and how did that all come together? So those of you who live in Seattle and you're driving and you see that big circular window up on Capitol Hill, it looks like a a turbine. Um, The space immediately below that is the uh, the the cathedral hall, and we have currently five beehives on that roof um, there, and it's accessible, um, and 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 so accessible by what? Ex- like like a ladder? Bees, <laughs> How do yeah, you get up no, there? No, uh, out of the choir room. <laughs> of course, <laughs> um, there's a door, um, and and these bees have the best view of Seattle. Oh my you can gosh! See the Space Needle, Elliott Bay. You the know, Olympic Mountains. <laughs> you, the Olympic Mountains on a clear day. <laughs> did you add um, those? Did you talk the the cathedral into letting you do this, or how did that come together? Um, I just sent, I think, an article about another cathedral, uh, the Denver Episcopal Cathedral, St. John's. I think I sent 
an article and some pictures of them doing it to the dean and, you know, to start softening him up. <laughs> I didn't need to soften him up. He was, like, on board immediately. He really helped make it happen. And, and I found that as I travel around the United States, people say, oh, I heard from your dean that you've got bees on your roof. I love um, it. So he's helping with national nationwide publicity but the bees so, the bees are pollinating what the uh, they're getting nectar from flowers and herbs on the well, landscape the, yeah they you know we got a lot of blackberry bushes <laughs> like everyone in seattle and the saint mark's green belt between the cathedral and um i and i5 yeah. um is is a huge space so um the seattle urban beekeeping community is huge and so and um you know there are a lot of beekeepers up on capitol hill and um it's it's great to be involved with the puget sound beekeeping association that meets at the arboretum mm. um once a month and and uh, we've been able to get a lot of help from them so what and, do you uh, are you are you bottling the honey or what what's what's the output yeah, well, we're um, we're bottling the honey, and um, we will sell it probably through the bookstore. We're, we're going to be doing some bottling over the next couple of weeks, so it'll probably be ready for Epiphany presents. Mm, mm. Um, maybe not quite Christmas. <laughs> what do you call it? Um, uh, we don't know. You know, we've been just so focused on caring for the bees and getting the honey out. We haven't given a lot of thought to the marketing or the branding. I love it. But I know the the bookstores happy for us um, to to sell it there. Well, but it, it's like what, a... and what it'll do is it'll help the project be self sustaining. Right. Um, right. Probably. You know, there we won't see any profit. I mean. My dream is that we'd have enough profit that we can donate the excess uh, to some beekeeping projects um, in Africa that Episcopal Relief and Development supports, and I've been inspired by, um, yeah, um, just so that they can get more hives and continue to build their business as well. Mm, I love it. That's really great. Well, I, I, what, what's up next for you? I know you're kind of in this transitioning to speaker, consultant. Um, you, you have other, are you planning other books or what's going, what, what's next on your plate, Brian? Well, I think what's next on my plate is after 17 years of working with a terrific organization, I get the chance to go out on a cloud um, and, and uh, I am going to focus my energy on telling the story of, of uh, you know, urban and suburban agriculture, um, mostly uh, through the eye of religious congregations mm -hmm. and encouraging more and more people to be involved in, in more and different ways. I'm also going to, um, I want to find ways to support food banks because, you know, food banks always need more fresh food. Mm -hmm. They need cash and they need fresh food right. more than they need, you know, canned food, which is not that healthy uh, as any of us who've looked at a label. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, and then also I'm excited about the King Conservation District. Um, you know, every county in the U.S. has a conservation district, but the King County Conservation District 
is starting to work with refugee uh, resettlement groups and churches to put in things like rain gardens and um, community gardens as, as a way of conservation hmm. um, and and sort of protecting our watersheds um, and and, uh, and teaching skills, uh, I would imagine, like teach, and teaching yeah. skills. Mm-hmm. Oh, and one of the churches has combined it with a whole cooking. Um, education program using their kitchen. Hmm. And they're in the middle of probably one of the most diverse communities in King County um, with lots of people resettled from all over the world. It's just amazing. Uh, This is uh, East Hill, Kent. Hmm. Um, And uh, I'm really excited about what Hillside Church is doing uh, with King Conservation District. Wow. As well as St. Columba Episcopal over on um, West Hill, Kent. And and International Rescue Committee is involved along with World Relief. Um, and um, I got to plug King Conservation District. That's cool. Hey, Brian, that's pretty close to where you and I both live. Will you give me a tour sometime of, the, of those a- gardens? Absolutely. And I've got beehives. I actually have beehives in... Um, Three other locations, uh, St. Columba Church in Kent, St. James Church in Kent, both down where we live, and the diocesan office next door to um, uh, the the cathedral. So the bishop can kind of keep an eye on the bees <laughs> from his... his from his office. Watch out, he might want to call it Bishop's Honey, and then you'll you'll, you'll yeah. lose control of the brand. <laughs> exactly. Well, Brian, um, I also know that you're blogging at faithfultilth.org, and I'll provide a link to that in our show notes uh, for today's episode. Um, I know that you've been doing a lot of traveling to promote your book, so um, maybe your New Year's resolution is to share some of those stories um, on yes. your blog. <laughs> Well, I have a good role model in Deborah Prenzing in terms of <laughs> blogging and communicating, so uh, maybe I need to kick off with a guest blog from you. Well, I'm impressed with what you're doing, and I'm I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. I think this time of year, we're all kind of thinking about how we can give back and whether our work or what the meaning is of our work, and uh, we get so wrapped up in uh, just the busyness of trying to go day to day. And it's just nice to, to hear some inspiring stories about ways that, um, the landscape is changing in the faith community to think about, um, providing food. Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's it's such a no brainer. When you first told me about it, I was like, wow, why hasn't this been done before? And I know there's lots of churches that probably have had agriculture programs, but it's just having it collected under a, a, a name or a program in the fact that you mapped it, I think it's just maybe showing the, the critical mass and that this is the right time to see this happening in our, our communities. Well, the aha moment I had in our conversations has been in the whole area of flowers. And I'm starting to tell churches, you know, you got to plug into slow flowers. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah. many, mo- almost all Episcopal churches, Presbyterians, Catholics, you know, they have flower guilds that, that uh, some of them, you know, grow flowers in their backyards and bring them to church. But a sure. lot of them buy them from florists. Mm-hmm. And I think your whole focus on seasonal arranging and local flowers um, and slow, being slow about it is an exciting thing that 
that I'm hoping I can help, um, you know, combine with my work into the future. Mm, good. Let's let's plan on that. Well, uh, I I just I was thinking maybe I should share one more story because you probably heard this, but it'll make you laugh. Um, we have a mutual friend. Um, Britt Olson, who is the um, priest at St. Luke's here in Seattle. And years ago, when um, I was living in Seattle and Britt was living in Reno, she invited me to go to a uh, liturgical floral arranging workshop uh, held at um, a monastery in Santa Barbara. And it was so much fun. I it was so I felt like I was fed with my spirit and with my creativity. And this was before I, when I was just a just a garden writer. I didn't have any interest specifically in flower farming. And it's just so fun to kind of see the dots of my interests and Brits and yours all connect together and just see that um, yeah, flowers are meaningful in many faith traditions and they're not just decoration but they have they symbolize life and um all kinds of passages of life and i just think uh there is a role for maybe me to plug in and and support what you're doing and um think about flowers as more than just you know just frivolous but but having a deeper meaning yeah well my brit olson story is they have St. Luke's and Ballard has one of the a wonderful urban garden. It's called Slug. Yes. St. Luke's Urban Garden. Right. Uh, what a perfect name for a garden. <laughs> I in love Seattle. it. In Ballard. <laughs> and now and now Britt's working with the city to put in a uh, rain garden. Yep. In at St. Luke's. So um Yep. She's amazing. She'll be another blog post for you too. Well, and a podcast for you. Oh, I know. I know. I I, it, I got to go shopping uh, to buy some plants for that rain garden. So I'm I'm excited to see what it means for for the stewardship of the land and, you know, harvesting rainwater rather than letting it go down into the storm drain. So that's a whole you're right. That's a whole other chapter or podcast. So, Brian, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your story. And uh, I know it'll inspire a lot of people. Um, anything else you want to wrap up with before we say no, goodbye? No, just, just uh, say thank you so much and let's do this again. All right. Sounds great. Thanks a lot, Brian. Okay. Bye. for joining us today. I have a special treat in store for you next week with our third annual Slow Flowers Holiday Music Special. You'll meet my guests, Scott and Kristen Prinzing, yes, my brother and sister-in-law, musicians, educators, environmental activists, and an uber-creative duo behind Earthshine, their band. You'll hear their story as passionate creatives, and they will share five original songs that relate to gardens, seasons, and the environment. It gave me great pleasure to invite them to appear on the Slow Flowers podcast, and I'm eager to share their story and songs with you. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 262,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you to each one of you for downloading, listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. 
If you value the content you receive each week, I invite you to show your thanks and support the Slow Flowers podcast with a donation. The button can be found on our homepage in the right column. Your contributions will help make it possible to transcribe future episodes of the podcast. And thanks to our family of sponsors, Arctic Alaska Peonies, a cooperative of 50 family farms in the heart of Alaska, providing high-quality, American-grown peony flowers during the months of July and August. Visit them today at arcticalaskapeonies.com. The Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top-quality products and services to the local floral industry. Find them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. Longfield Gardens provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Visit them at longfield-gardens.com. Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. Look for the American flag icon to find Syndicate's USA-made products and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry with the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds, supplied to farms large and small, and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Check them out at johnnysseeds.com. The Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers formed in 1988, ASCFG, was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. We have 45 star reviews now, so thanks for helping out and getting the word out to listeners everywhere. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers Podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at Kinetic treefitness.com. Oh, 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 o